Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. I bring greetings from Andrew and Mel in London. Kelly and I and Thomas were able to go see them yesterday and Friday as well. Had to go see Pepper up at the hospital too. Uh, We just wanted to get down there to uh, take the kids, to allow Andrew to go up to the hospital and allow Mel to have time to take a shower and things like that um, when when she's able to do that. So we were very blessed to go up there and to see them, but they send their greetings. They thank you very much for your uh, encouragement, your prayers, uh, everything you've done to uh, to be able to minister to them through this time with Pepper. Uh, they're tired. They have a long road ahead of them. They know that. Uh, I think Pepper is doing well considering uh, that when we got there on Friday it was she wasn't able to eat because she was um, getting ready for chemo treatment the next little bit. So uh, she was not in her best of moods when we got there uh, because she wasn't able to eat and I don't blame her. Um, so we did our best to leave the room when we were eating so she wouldn't eye whatever it was we were eating. But um, anyways, we went back up there yesterday, and she was sitting in bed with a bowl of chips and uh, watching, watching a TV show, I think. So, but they very much appreciate your prayers and your encouragement to them. Uh, let's pray, and then we will get into God's Word this morning. Father God, we, we thank you for your Word, Lord. We thank you for the privilege it is to to come to read your word. Uh, we thank you for Lord, where we live and, and how you've blessed us to have so many different variations of your scripture available to us. Lord, we are abundantly blessed uh, in the availability of your word to us, and we, we thank you for that. May we not take that for granted, or may we take that as a great responsibility uh, to then be able to put your word into practice, or to be a blessing not only to each other, but also to our community around us as well. So, Lord, we pray for wisdom. We need it. And, Lord, we ask that you would work in us and through us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you remember, just after Christmas, we started into the book of Philemon, so we're going to be continuing on in that this morning. If you are not with us, uh, we'll go over a quick, a quick review of last time. Uh, when, we, when we looked at the first seven verses, I believe it was, of Philemon, we looked at the writer, of course, the writer is Paul. He's writing from prison. He is writing to a man named Philemon, a very wealthy man who hosted a church actually in his house. Uh, so we know he was wealthy. Uh, and um, so that's, that's where Paul's writing. So a similar, you'll hear it called the, one of the prison epistles, similar to Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians written by Paul. Um, Philemon himself was saved through the ministry of Paul many years earlier in Ephesus, and now Philemon is an active member in the Colossian church. So Philemon knew who Paul was, had a great respect for him, so seeing Paul's name at the beginning in verse 1 there of the letter would have been exciting for Philemon. He would have wanted to read on. Now at the same time, if I knew Paul and I was getting a letter from Paul, I think I would be excited, but I know Paul's likely got some things for me to work on. So I don't know if it was mixed emotions maybe for Philemon when he saw this letter letter from Paul. Things that he needed to do, things that he needed to put into practice in his life. The letter is actually addressed to Paul as well as uh, what most think are his wife and son and the rest of the church. So this letter would have been read in front of the church meeting 
in Philemon's home. We didn't actually uh, read any verses speaking about another man, but there's another man we'll look at this morning named Onesimus. We touched on him uh, a, few, a few times last time we looked. But Onesimus was a slave of Philemon who had run away. An unbelieving slave had run away, likely stolen some money from Philemon, and now he is returning. He is returning to Philemon after he has been in contact with Paul. As Paul's in prison. Paul has led him to the Lord, and now, Philemon, or sorry, now Onesimus is returning to Philemon for forgiveness, for reconciliation with his master. And likely when Onesimus got into contact with Paul after he had run away, I don't think it would have taken much time for Paul to get into the backstory of Onesimus, see why he was running. Uh, for Onesimus, it was maybe at that point the last person that he would want to run into because now he knew that he had things, responsibilities that he had to do in order to make things right with his former master. So last time we looked at the heart of forgiveness or the characteristics that we should have that Paul is saying Philemon does have in order to then conclude that he will forgive Onesimus. Remember when Paul, when Paul wrote in the start of his letter, and we're going to read it here again actually, but the start of his letter he gave Philemon, this is who you are. These are characteristics of you. And therefore, as we're going to look at this morning, because this is who you are, you're going to conclude to forgive. He's going to make, I'll say make, he's going to very much encourage Philemon to come to the conclusion on his own. Well, Paul said that this is who I am, therefore it makes sense that I would forgive Onesimus returning to me. So these are reasons that Philemon should be, and I'll I'll say excited to forgive his now brother. Now, forgiveness isn't typically something we're excited about. I mentioned to the, to the teens in Sunday school this morning, you probably did not wake up this morning hoping that you would have the opportunity to forgive somebody, right? I'm sure that wasn't the first thing to cross your mind. I'll say that wasn't the first thing to cross my mind this morning when I woke up because that means that someone is going to offend you today. Someone's going to hurt you in some way that then causes you to extend forgiveness to them. But Paul is very much going to say we need to be anxious to forgive our brother and sister in Christ, something that we look forward to, something we're excited about uh, when we've been offended. So the main thrust of those first seven verses, Paul is teaching Philemon that a believer is concerned with the Lord and concerned with other believers. Therefore, that will then conclude that he will desire to forgive Onesimus. Because if you and I truly grasp the extent of our sin, we should be able to forgive each other, shouldn't we? It should be something that we are excited about. So now we're into the, the bulk of, of Paul's letter to Philemon. And remember, up until, up until this point, up until, or what we looked at last time, he hasn't even mentioned Onesimus. He's, he's, building, he's building Philemon up, not puffing him up, but simply explaining to him who he is. It's as if you're wanting someone to realize something on their own instead of just telling them to do something. Because Paul could have used his authority as an apostle to do that. Uh, it's like if you, I remember growing up, I had an aunt and uncle, they lived in Dundas. They still live in Dundas. So they were very close to the Niagara Escarpment. And every Canada Day, we would go to their house for a picnic. The Ottaways would go. So uh, so be my dad, my dad's brother and sister, their families, cousins, all around the same age. So what we would do is we would have lunch. We'd get to Dundas early, uh, mid-morning, and then we would have lunch, and then we would go for a walk. And we would burn off, that's the hope, burn off, 
the burgers and hot dogs or whatever we had eaten for lunch, of course. Now, I was the youngest of all the Ottaway cousins, little Marty, that was me. Um, I had a, the oldest cousin, actually, on the other, other side is Marty as well. So he was big Marty, I was little Marty. We were bookends, and we would go for a walk. So now you can, you can imagine we've got moms and dads, and we had, there was four of us, and then we had four cousins on that side. So when we were all younger, I'm sure, and you know this if you've ever gone for a walk with kids, what happens eventually if that walk gets too long? If that walk gets too long, these are the kids at the back. And they are going slow, okay? Now, as they are going slow, they are complaining. I won't, I won't generalize that. I complained as a kid. I won't generalize you, but I did. And what, what would I likely say? I'd likely say, I'm tired. I'm tired. As if no one else, everyone else has 100% energy. But for some reason for me, I walk real slow when I'm tired. So as a parent, and I'm on the other end of this, or I will be getting to the other end of this shortly, as a parent, you can go to your child and you can do a few things, can't you? You can pick your child up, carry them, or that might be the last resort. I remember going, going for walks with some of my nieces and nephews, and they were so tired they're just sitting on the ground. So you probably have experiences like that too, where you look back and your, your kid is just sitting there, and now you are the parent whose kid literally cannot get up because they are so exhausted. But you can do a few things. Of course, you can pick them up. You can tell your kid, hurry up. Hurry up. Walk faster, right? You can tell them to do that. And your kid should obey you, right? Because they're my kid. Now, that usually doesn't work, does it? Usually doesn't work. I'm glad. I'm ahead of the game. So Thomas isn't even walking yet, but I know, I know gold nuggets like that that are just so useful. I know that when I tell him to walk faster, he probably won't. Now I tell him to crawl faster, but you can tell him to walk faster. But what else can you do? And I, um, as an uncle, I probably have done this as well. But you can make that child believe that they can walk faster, right? You can make them believe that I can do this. I can walk faster. Now, usually my tactic with my nieces and nephews was let's race. Say, hey, I'll bet you I can get there faster than you can. Of course, then you see their eyes light up, and they get up and they just take off. And all of a sudden, somehow a miracle happens, and they've got all this energy. And now they can run to the end, right? So what you're doing in that case, and in that way, you're saving your arms some trouble. And the hurry-up thing was never going to work anyways. So, so what you're doing, you are making that child believe what they already can do. Right? They know, or you're, you're helping them understand what they already know they can do. I can, I can actually still walk. Okay? So when my, when my parents, I'm sure, did that to me, you get up and you run and you think, I can actually do this. I can actually walk. My mom and dad, must, they must have thought I was exhausted, but we got a miracle that's gone on here. Now, it's a silly example, but I, I think it's similar to what Paul's doing because he is telling Philemon things about himself that maybe he knew, maybe he didn't, or maybe he just didn't understand. It's like a job interview when someone, when someone asks you to, to tell me your strengths and weaknesses. I, I never liked that because, I, I, I mean, I, I think I know some of my strengths and some of my weaknesses, but sometimes I'd say, this is what I'm good at, and Kelly would look at me and say, no, you're not. You're not good at that at all. Right? So we, we, have, we have people from the outside who can look and who can observe maybe better than we can at some points, Right? 
So I think that's what Paul is doing to some extent to Philemon here. He's saying, this is who you are. Therefore, in a sense, Paul doesn't even really need to ask him to forgive Onesimus. He needs to maybe suggest it. But remember, when this letter is being written, Onesimus is probably standing right there. He's probably there. He probably came with the letter. So he is standing in front of this church family in Philemon's home with Philemon's family and the church um, there as well. So we're actually going to read the entire letter this morning. And what I want you to do, I want you to sit as if you are in this church, and this is how this letter would have been read. So we would have come and say, we got this letter from Paul. Here's Onesimus. He's the one who brought the letter with him. And we've got him here this morning, and we are going to read this letter from Paul, okay, from the Apostle Paul. So look in verse 1. And we're not going to stay on this this morning, of course, but this is what we looked at last time. Philemon, verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to compliment Philemon. He says, I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Then look how he just assumes. He just says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So that's how it would have been read to the church. And I'm sure then Onesimus is standing there, maybe smiling a little nervous with what's going on. Say, yep, that's me. That's who Paul's talking about. I'm here. Surprise. Um, and that's what Paul has for you to do. But look in verse 8. We're going to continue on. Accordingly. Now your Bible might say, therefore. So what, what Paul's doing, he's saying, because of who you are in those first seven verses, therefore, verse 8, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. 
So he's saying, don't, don't do what I'm going to ask you to do because you're required to do it. But he says, for love's sake, for the love of Philemon that Philemon has, that I know that the church knows can attest to it, this is what I want you to do. Verse 9, yet for love's sake, I, pre- or I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Simply meaning that Onesimus came to Christ through the ministry of Paul, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Then verse 11, formerly he was useless, Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So Paul knew of the love that Philemon had. He didn't have to use his authority as an apostle to command Onesimus, or sorry, to command Philemon to forgive Onesimus, although he could have. He could have done that. He could have just told Philemon, hurry up, walk faster, because he, is, he was the apostle. He is like a parent to the child. He has that authority to be able to do that. But Paul did know, I think, I think one of the reasons why he used this approach, he knew that it would be difficult for Philemon, or could be difficult, humanly speaking, for Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Understandably so. Remember that Philemon's been offended greatly through this. Okay? So he probably could have thought of many reasons, many ways that Onesimus has hurt him, and therefore many reasons to justify why I do not need to forgive this man. I do not need to forgive him. Could have been a, a human uh, tendency or a human temptation for him to conclude. We're going to come back to those verses here in a second, but um, as Philemon forgives Onesimus, what he's going to then move into, and we're going to look at now, there's practical steps that must take place that we must also take in order for us to properly practice forgiveness amongst each other. Practice forgiveness together when one of us offends another one of us, because it will happen. Uh, We know it will happen. We know it has happened. But so Paul's pretty much saying, uh, if or since you are going to forgive Onesimus, Uh, This is what it's going to look like. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And then verse 15, for this perhaps, perhaps is why he came, or sorry, why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul tells Philemon what to do practically to, to, uh, in order to forgive Onesimus. I think very clear to us is that Philemon is to receive Onesimus back. He's to accept him back, right? Accept him back. Paul never, Paul never downplays, though, the offense that has occurred to Philemon. So he's to accept Onesimus back, even though he has offended him greatly. But to receive or to accept someone back, I think, is that step of forgiveness. And since Onesimus has returned, Onesimus has desired forgiveness, Philemon needs to receive him back. We know that Onesimus is fully repentant for what he has done, And so Paul up to this point has pretty much told Philemon that he expected him to welcome Onesimus back, although not forcing him to do so. And he says that. He says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. So Paul is pretty much saying, I will not force you to do this simply because of who I am. 
Now, from what we read in verse 12, Paul says he's sending Onesimus back, and he describes him as his very heart, or Paul says, my very heart. So Paul has a love and a care for his brother, his now brother, Onesimus, but knows that he needs to return to Philemon. And I, I think Paul also wants Philemon to experience the difference that he has experienced in observing Onesimus. Paul has seen Onesimus turn from darkness to light, um, from unbeliever to now a follower of Christ, and he wants Philemon to also have that blessing of seeing it. Because certainly Onesimus is far different than the last time Philemon probably saw him. He wants to, uh, Paul wants him to see that change that's happened. Uh, he doesn't just tell Philemon, however, to receive Onesimus back, but now he is going to receive him back as a brother. He isn't just receiving him back, but he is receiving him back as a brother. Now, this isn't always going to be the case for you and I. We're not always going to have someone come and offend us, unbeliever, and then they come back, however long later, and now they're a believer and they are seeking forgiveness. Of course, when we talk amongst ourselves, we are talking about believers offending believers, seeking forgiveness from each other. But I think the principle uh, is certainly the same. There's a spiritual brotherhood, a spiritual sisterhood among us, among true believers, as all true believers are children of the Heavenly Father. And now, ironically enough, we're going to look at Galatians here in a second. You don't need to turn there, but we're going to, we're going to read a verse quickly concerning the relationship now between Philemon and Onesimus because of the fact that they are brothers in Christ. So remember, Onesimus was Philemon's slave. Galatians 5.13, this is Paul writing simply about our relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Then he says, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now we know we're supposed to serve one another, but what, Philemon, what Paul is asking Philemon to do is that in order, or when you accept Onesimus back as a brother in Christ, you are now his servant. You are now his slave. Now, we typically don't call each other slaves. That just carries a different connotation, but that's really what we are to each other. We're, of course, to treat each other respectively and, and all that stuff. I, I don't, we don't come to each other and say, since you are my slave, do this for me, right? But we are servants. We are slaves of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I am your servant. You are my servant. We serve each other. We're in this together as believers. So ironically enough, now... Philemon is not just accepting Onesimus back and everything's hunky-dory again. Now Philemon is looking at Onesimus and saying, okay, I am your servant now. We're brothers in Christ. I am your servant. And of course, vice versa. Paul even goes as far to say that perhaps the reason God allowed Onesimus to run away and to desert Philemon was that he would eventually come to Christ. And we know that God uses the say, bad decisions that we make as believers still to accomplish His purposes, accomplish His glory. That does not justify our bad, our sinful decisions, but God can certainly use them, can He? He can certainly redeem them uh, for His glory. Uh, you think of Joseph. When Joseph, when his brothers went as far as to sell him into slavery for their benefit, and years later when his brothers are now at the mercy of the second most powerful man in Egypt, of course, turning out to be Joseph. Joseph then is confronting his brothers, reveals himself to his brothers, and this is what he says. He says, as for you, 
brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as are today. Joseph knew that some terrible, horrible decisions had been made by his brothers, and it doesn't excuse their choices, of course, but God was able to redeem those choices for the good of many. And we know the Lord can do that through us today as well. But just as the bad decision that Onesimus made is not excused by Paul, it's redeemed by God. So God uses the fault of human action in order to accomplish his purposes. And Onesimus being apart from Philemon results in his returning, as Paul says, his returning forever to him. Of course, as a believer now, we we are joined together eternally. You and I are joined together eternally as one in Christ. And now Onesimus returning, same thing with Philemon. He has not just returned to you to resume his duties as your servant. He has returned to you forever as a brother in the Lord. Paul even shows that he desires so greatly uh, that Onesimus and Philemon return to a proper relationship that he offers to pay anything that was taken, to, taken from Philemon. Look in verse 17. Paul says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you receive me. Receive him as an apostle, is what Paul is saying. Receive him as the apostle Paul. And then in verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So Paul is saying, charge that to my account. We could refer to this as restitution, repayment. It appears that Onesimus, we, and we gather this as well from other, um, other areas, that Onesimus has stolen some money from Philemon when he left, as well as the fact when you think of a servant leaving your house, there's responsibilities that are now going undone. So he would have, Philemon would likely have to have gone and hired other servants in order to work for him to get the responsibilities done that Onesimus would have done. All that to say, this would have been quite a hassle for Philemon, for Onesimus, to not only take money from him, but to simply leave as well, to run away. So he would have needed money to fund his runaway. And it's also likely that he's unable to pay his master back when he returns to him. But Paul tells Philemon to accept Onesimus as you would receive me and that he was good for whatever Onesimus owed him. Now I think a, a main reason maybe, I say a main reason, but um, something that we notice, Paul addresses this letter to the church. And often when I read scripture, I'm trying as best as I can to put myself in the shoes of the recipient, of someone who is reading this in the first century, whatever the case is, whenever the book was written, someone who's sitting there, what are they thinking? What are they going through? And I think that's part of the reason why Paul, or I think part of the reason why Paul addresses this to the entire church. He could have sent this letter to Philemon. He could have sent it to Philemon, sent Onesimus with him. Onesimus shows up on Philemon's doorstep, says, here's the letter from Paul. He, he's saying that you need to forgive me. <laughs> and Paul said it, so you got to do it. But Paul addresses it to the entire church, right? Can you imagine coming meeting, hearing this letter, and now we have what we can assume is reconciliation that occurred between these two brothers, and the entire church knows about it. The entire church. So we all know about it. Not only that, but churches through the centuries now know it, right? Through God's word. But can you imagine the encouragement that that would have been to that church family? Unbelievable how they, they could stand up here and say, hey, remember, 
remember I, you know, I talked about Onesimus was my, my servant and he was, um, you know, things were going to be going great. And then remember he took off and I, I just, I, I, I couldn't believe it. But now he shows up at church one morning, he's got a letter from Paul. And he is seeking my forgiveness. He comes back and now we look across the auditorium, although it was in his house, so we look across the family room and there's Onesimus sitting there and he's worshiping with us. Man, something crazy must have happened. But can you imagine now they are reading this letter and now everybody knows about this. What an encouragement that would be for that church. Uh, and I think that that is at least part of the reason why Paul addresses the letter to the church. Man, you try and put yourself in those shoes, though, of those people. But um, all that to say, Paul says that he is good for what Onesimus owed him. Now, Philemon could have decided to forgive that debt that Onesimus owed, and maybe he did. But Paul doesn't leave that open. He offers to repay what was owed so that Philemon probably didn't feel any pressure uh, to forgive that, like, he, uh, like he, he would have been pressured to forgive that monetary debt that he owed. Uh, also a lesson for me, though, to understand that I am to own up to the consequences of my decisions, right? I am to own up to the consequences of my decisions. I need to be willing to make things right. Now, before we move on, and we're actually going to hop back to verse, verse 8 as we, uh, for the rest of the time this morning, but before we move on, that offer of Paul says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. You think, what is, a, what is that a perfect picture of? You have, you have Onesimus who has wronged Philemon, wronged his master, stolen from him, made terrible sinful decisions, runs off, comes back for forgiveness, is literally unable to repay what he owes to Philemon. He cannot do it. And you have Paul standing who will say, I will repay what is owed by Onesimus. Whatever it is, I'll repay it because he cannot do it. He's unable to be reconciled to Philemon, right? He's unable. But Paul's willing to pay the debt that Onesimus is unable to pay. Therefore, Paul is willing to endure some consequences. And he's willing to endure some suffering, if you want to call it that, that he does not deserve. It's a perfect picture of Christ, isn't it? Perfect. You and I, we stand, we have offended God greatly with our sin, with our decisions. In faith, we come back wanting to make things right. We're unable to do it, though, aren't we? We can't do it. We cannot repay God for our offense to Him, for the sin that we have committed against Him. We can't do it. But we have Christ who stands who says, I will repay whatever Marty Ottaway owes. I will repay the debt that Marty Ottaway cannot pay. He cannot, he literally cannot do it. He could spend a thousand years and not repay that debt. But you have Christ who now stands and says, I will repay that debt. I will do it. Whatever Marty owes, I will do it. He will repay it. An incredible picture, I think, of Christ. Um, of Christ's salvation offer to you and to me as Christians. There was an old song, it's probably in the 80s or 90s, and um, I, I remember it, and it's just an old chorus. We used to sing at Emmanuel, and it was, he paid a debt he did not owe, I owed a debt I could not pay. Not I owed a debt I did not pay, but I owed a debt I could not pay. It's literally impossible for me to do it. It's literally impossible for you to do it. Amazing, the grace of God 
that he extends to us. But the exact same role here that Paul is playing, of course, in earthly, uh, in earthly mindset. So through this part of the passage, these are actions that Philemon needs to be willing to take if he is going to forgive Onesimus. He needs to accept him back. He needs to accept Paul's offer uh, for restitution as well. But Paul has already told him because of his godly character, he should be willing, he should be anxious. And now Paul gives the practical, practical aspect of that, which we just looked at. So we're given the responsibility of what we will call the offended. Okay, so you've got Philemon who is the offended. And that's often the responsibility that we look to, right? We, we must forgive others. That's often what we are summoned to do and we think to do. But I think what Paul does as well, he gives responsibility for what we'll call the offender. For the offender. So when I have offended you, Paul then gives me what my responsibility is. So this morning we're looking at not only the responsibility of the offended, but of the offender um, as well. Turn to Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew. Keep your hand in Philemon. You know we'll be back there. But turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And what Christ is doing in Matthew 5, he is, I won't say debunking, but uh, many of the laws had been taken to a very different degree by the religious leaders when Christ is speaking the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but So what Christ is doing, he is trying to help his listeners understand that it is not simply the action of, say, something like murder that is the problem. There's the desire behind it. Because that was creeping in that, well, I'm okay as long as I don't physically murder somebody. Of course, we know there is hatred, there is anger that leads up to that point. So that's what Christ is talking about. Matthew chapter 5, though, um, verse 23. So what Christ is doing, he is telling us that when I have, or telling me that when I have anger in my heart, it's going to affect a few things. It's going to affect my relationship with God, and it's going to affect my relationship with you, if you are the one that I'm angry with. It's also going to affect my relationship with you, even if I'm not angry with you, but if I'm holding a grudge with the person sitting beside you, that type of thing. So it affects everything as believers. But look in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 23. Matthew 5, 23, Christ says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Then he says, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So he's saying when you come to worship God, when you are ready to give your offering to God, and you remember that your brother has something against you, go to your brother first and then come. So he doesn't say if you are worshiping God and you know that your brother has offended you. Right? So before, before we come and worship God, if I know someone's offended me, I've got to let them know. Say, hey, you've got to make it right with me. You, uh, you offended me greatly, and you know it. So come and make things right. No. He puts the responsibility on us when I've offended somebody. So when I know I've offended someone, I have a responsibility too. I'm not just sitting, waiting for someone to come and forgive me. I'd be sitting here a long time probably in some instances, right? I am to go, and you would too, I am to go and to seek that forgiveness, to make things right before I even offer anything to the Lord. So the offender also has a responsibility, and that's what we're going to close with. You can turn back to Philemon. We're going to look at uh, verse 8. We already read this a few times, so we should have this memorized. 
Philemon verse 8 says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. As we mentioned last time, we have a limited amount of knowledge on Onesimus. Uh, We just do not know much about him, but I think we can get a lot from his character. We can learn a lot from the character of Onesimus. Now, because of the fact that Onesimus was a slave of Philemon, he committed a great crime. He did. He committed a great crime by running from his master. He abandoned him. Now he has returned, and now there is no extent to the punishment that Philemon is able to inflict upon Onesimus. No extent. It would be nothing for Philemon in this day and age, this day, not this day and age, this day and age and culture to go and to have Onesimus executed for what he had done. The law would not bat an eye, okay, if that's what Philemon decided to do. Now, Philemon knows that, so who else do you think knows that? Onesimus, right? He knows it. So he's standing in front of Philemon at his mercy with what Philemon wants to do, what he decides to do. He's completely aware of it. So I think we see from this the sincerity of Onesimus, willing to take what comes. He's willing to put himself in danger despite the consequences that may follow. And I look at myself and I think far too often, far too often I make mistakes in my actions because I'm worried about what the consequences might be. Not even what the consequences will be, but what they might be. The possibility of something going wrong affects my decisions, doesn't it? And it shouldn't be that way. If, I, if we fall into the trap of making decisions based on what we think the consequences might be, we're likely not going to act in such a way that the Lord desires, a way that honors the Lord. We can pretty easily justify an action by how we think the result will turn out. I know I've spoke a bit, little bit about when I worked, uh, when I worked for Honda. Um, I was a service writer and um, Take that as you will if you've had your run-ins with some service writers. I apologize on behalf of us. We do our best to be honest, at least for the most part. I, I can speak for myself, I guess, in that regard. All that to say, I used to have to work a Saturday shift every now and again. And the employee parking lot was a long ways away. But on Saturdays, the powers that be would let us workers park closer to the building. Couldn't believe it right? This is unreal. I can, I can now walk about 20 seconds to the door as opposed to a minute and a half. Man, the perks of working on Saturdays, right? Anyways, I would also pride myself getting there and, and, and backing in. I love backing in. Kelly mentioned that the other day to someone that Ottawa's, they love backing in if they can. Now, I, I don't like people watching me when I'm backing in because It can sometimes take me a little bit. But what is the reason that I back in? Especially when it's a Saturday at work? So I can pull right out, right? So work's done, and I've probably saved a good three seconds that I now have to do what I want with my Saturday, right? It's funny, the the intelligence of the Ottaways, too. So anyways, I remember this Saturday, what we would do is we we would park amongst the cars that technicians were working on. It's a Saturday, so technicians aren't working, but they've got a lot of cars there that they're in the middle of jobs on and things like that. So I remember I was going to back into a spot, and I had a little, my little Honda Civic that you see next door. I was backing in with that, 
and I must not have paid attention for about a second and a half, and you're backing up, and what do you feel? Man, you feel that bump behind you, and your heart just sinks. You, you're, and you're sitting there thinking, there's no way I hit that. Of course I wouldn't have done that. Why would I back into something that's ridiculous? Of course I did. So I put it in drive, and I move forward a couple inches to make sure I'm not sitting on the bumper. And <clears throat> So now my Saturday is just ruined. Go, out, go walk behind the car and look at the bumper of an old old beat-up truck sitting behind me that's being worked on, and it's got a little scuff of paint on it. Man, there's no way I did that. There's just something, something, someone set me up. They must have. Anyway, so your heart sinks again, and you go into work now. Most of the bosses weren't there on Saturday, so I knew what I had to do come Monday morning when I saw my boss. Now, that was probably the worst thing, because I'm wrestling through this for two days, I can't remember if I told Kelly this or not, or maybe told her after the fact, but get there Monday morning, and I go up to my boss, and I explain everything to him. And I was like, I know you probably need to talk to the customer and make sure that something wasn't there before. And I was like, I understand. I'm, I got to pay if he wants to touch up that paint. I realized that. So my boss thanked me and uh, told, told me that he'd take care of it. And he came back about you know two hours later or something, and He's like, I, ca- I called the customer, and he, sa- he said that scratch has been there for years. <laughs> Great, so I'm off the hook. Now, so what did I do, though? I went through that entire two days of, do I tell him, do I not tell him? Now, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I knew I needed to tell him. I knew I needed to do what was right. But I'm, I'm, I'm looking at something because of not even just the consequences, but of the possible consequences And I'm letting that determine how I'm going to live my life, how I'm going to choose between what God has told me is clearly right and what God has told me is wrong. It's ridiculous. Now, I didn't have to pay anything. And for me, the consequence is certainly minimal. It may be some touch-up paint. But at the same time, even something as small as that, we can so often let the consequences or the possibility of consequences determine how we live our life. But Onesimus here, I think he realizes, despite the consequences that he may have had to endure, which certainly are far greater than some touch-up paint, um, he needed to seek forgiveness. And certainly the reason that Onesimus was in this predicament, if we can call it that, was because of his own sinful choices, and now he is owning up to them. But he doesn't let the potential consequence stop him from doing what is right. He doesn't allow himself to be swayed to do wrong because of a possible outcome that might be unpleasant to him. I remember I was seeking wisdom from my dad a few years ago, and, um, and I remember something that stuck out to me that he said to me, and, and here's what he said. He said, we must always do what is right and then deal with the consequences. We must always do what is right and then deal with the consequences. We can't get that reversed. We can't do it. Certainly true as God's people, not only in his church, but also in our families, our personal lives, interacting with unbelievers when we're at work, when we're at school. The second characteristic that we note about Onesimus is contained actually within his name. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. We spoke last time, Onesimus' name actually means useful. And often what slave owners would do is they would give their slaves a name in order for them to live up to it. 
So they would give him a name so that Onesimus now thinks, my master thinks I'm useful. Therefore, what does that propel him to do? Try and be useful, right? Good tactic. You go to work, your boss says, hey, if your boss says, your new name is not lazy, that probably doesn't bode too well for you, does it? What did my boss think of me before? What does he want me to do, right? But that's what, uh, that's what slave owners would do. So Paul is using some wordplay when he calls Onesimus useful. John MacArthur puts it like this. He says, he says what Paul is doing, he's really saying, useful formerly was useless, but now useful is useful. Useful formerly was useless, but now useful is useful. It's a tongue twister, but, but you get the point. That's the wordplay that Paul is using Paul calls Onesimus useless, which certainly was true. As an unbeliever, he's useless for ministry. Um, But Onesimus was just as useless as any you or I were before Christ, before the grace of Christ reached down, because it's clear that Paul would have gladly put Onesimus to work for the things and for the gospel in that area if it wasn't for that matter of reconciliation. Turn your Bible back probably about one page to 2 Timothy. Uh, Two pages maybe. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Because there's a few other instances where Paul refers to someone as being useful for ministry. And you don't have to keep your hand in Philemon. Uh, We won't return there this morning. You can stay in 2 Timothy. Look in chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 20 as Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Now in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. And then verse, chapter 2, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, and then he says, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Useful to the master of the house. So as, as he writes to Timothy, Paul's describing here the fact that we ought to cleanse, we ought to rid ourselves from anything that is dishonorable. And then we will be useful for ministry, much more useful to God for ministry. That word for cleansing there in 2 Timothy 2 comes from the word that we get our word catharsis. It means to clean out thoroughly, to completely purge. Uh, So we are to purge the dishonorable traits. That is how we are to deal with the sin that we have. We're to turn, we're to run for it, seek to be a vessel of honor for the master. A vessel of honor is someone who is useful to God. We know we're living in a way that honors Christ, or sorry, we know that when we are living in a way that honors Christ, we are then able to be used more in ministry for the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to be perfect. Of course, we never will be But when you and I are living honorable lives to the Lord, we will be more useful in ministry to him. If you're still in 2 Timothy, look down at chapter 4, verse 9. This is as Paul is closing his letter. He's he's mentioning a few people, and he's going to call someone else useful here as well. Chapter 4, verse 9 of 2 Timothy. He says this, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Then verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Then he says, get Mark and bring him with you. Then he gives the reason why. He says, for he is very useful to me in ministry. He is very useful to me in ministry. That's a challenge for me because I need to uh, conduct myself in such a way 
that I am useful to God in ministry. That ought to be my desire. Paul's giving Timothy instruction here, and, and what he's doing, he's saying, Mark is Onesimus. Mark is useful. Mark has proven himself to Paul, and at the end of Philemon, if you remember back in verse 24 at Philemon, Paul calls Mark a fellow worker. In many ways and to many people, Mark had shown himself to be, faith, to be a faithful and valuable leader of the early church. I promise this is the last place we'll turn, but turn to 1 Corinthians 9. This is, what, this is what Mike read this morning for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Because Paul didn't just desire for Onesimus to be useful. He didn't just desire for Timothy to be useful. He didn't just desire for Mark to be useful. Of course, we know uh, with the character of Paul, he desired himself to be useful as well. Useful to the Master. 1 Corinthians 9 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So this is on the offense, right? This is me desiring, this is Paul desiring to be useful to God, what he must do in order to be useful. But what's interesting is that in the next two verses, Paul shows that I believe he is afraid to fall into uselessness, okay? So he doesn't just say what he does in order to be useful, but now he's, he explains in verses 26 and 27 what he does to avoid uselessness. Look in verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. And then he says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. And then he finishes, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So I think it was a fear of Paul, a healthy fear, a godly fear to be useless to God. He wanted to be useful. That was what he desired to do. Matthew Henry says this, he says, what happy changes conversion makes of evil good and of unprofitable useful of evil good and of unprofitable useful. May that be my desire this morning. I think as a church family, we work together for the Lord in ministry. We strive to be useful to the master. You and I strive to be Onesimus. We strive to be as he is. This includes all of our responsibilities, even in forgiveness, as we are responsible to each other and to the Lord. Our desire must be to be used by God our desire must be that we are, I want to be useful to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your goodness to us, Father, and we, we again thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Lord, thank you for the wisdom that you give us through it. We thank you for redeeming the situation between Philemon and Onesimus, Lord, both your children, brothers in the Lord. We thank you for that. And Lord, not only do we thank you for redeeming that situation, but we thank you for allowing us to also observe that situation, us to learn from it. Lord, not only that church family there, but us at Harold Baptist Church 2,000 years later, that we can also learn things that we are to do, things that we are to accomplish as brothers and sisters in Christ. What a privilege that that is. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity you give us to be your children. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for salvation and the joy that you give us through it. And Lord, we pray that, um, Lord, as we sing and as we eventually go on our way, that we would glorify you in everything. We would seek and we would desire to honor you. 
uh, as we honor Christ and as we are responsible and as we honor each other. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.